0: Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Nena Ochime, MD, MPH, about the article, A Survey Demonstrating Lack of Consensus on the Sequence of Medications for Treatment of Hyperkalemia Among Pediatric Critical Care Providers, published in the June 2015 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Chime is a second-year resident in the Department of Pediatrics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Children's Hospital at Montefiore in New York. Welcome, Nena.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Parker. Thank you for having me.
0: It's great to have you here. You're going to be talking about hyperkalemia today, which is potentially life-threatening. Are there guidelines out there for the management of acute life-threatening hyperkalemia?
1: Yes, there are guidelines, well for adults, in the ACLS guidelines we have clear recommendations on specific medications, diseases, routes and sequence of therapy for treatment of hyperkalemia during cardiac arrest. And as far as the guidelines go, this first appeared in the 2005 guidelines where diuretics and resins were recommended for mild hyperkalemia. And then we also had glucose, insulin, sodium bicarbonate, and nebulized albuterol recommended for moderate hyperkalemia, and calcium chloride, sodium bicarbonate, glucose, and insulin, and nebulized albuterol recommended in order of urgency for severe hyperkalemia. This was further clarified in the 2010 guidelines where the recommendations were stated in order of urgency starting with the membrane stabilizers, then the medications that cause intracellular shift of potassium, and finally, medications that cause excretion of potassium from the body. But the Pediatric Advanced Life Support Guidelines do not have clear recommendations for life-threatening hyperkalemia. What we actually have in PALS is after each medication, we have like a statement stating that it's possible to use that for hyperkalemia, so take calcium. After calcium is written in pulse, you have something saying, oh, it can also be used for hyperkalemia. but it is unclear if there's actually a consensus on the sequence among pediatric providers.
0: So what led you to do your study?
1: It all started as anecdotal experience in real-life hypokalemic cardiac arrest situations and then in simulation scenarios during mock codes where we observed a dialogue on the choice of medications, the route of administration of medications, and the sequence with a lot of inconsistencies in the approach to treatment. We also observed during simulation scenarios that as soon as hyperkalemia is thrown in, there's a decline in the quality of CPR. We observed these variations among providers from different countries, among providers from different institutions, and even among providers within the same institution, making it a bit difficult to attribute these observations only to institutional variation. We conducted a literature search, which showed that the general understanding for hyperkalemia management was three-pronged. We have the membrane stabilizers that include the calcium salts. We have calcium chloride, calcium gluconate. For calcium chloride, we have a faster bioavailability. But the problem with calcium chloride is there's a lot of reluctance with giving calcium chloride when the only access you have is peripheral. We also have the medications which cause intracellular shift of potassium, like insulin and glucose, sodium bicarbonate, or albuterol. And then the third group of medications are those that cause excretion of potassium from the body, like diuretics and ion exchange resins. The literature supporting the use of each of these medications in the management is quite clear. The one with the main controversy is sodium bicarbonate, where we have textbooks supporting the use of sodium bicarbonate, but we don't have clear literature actually supporting the use of sodium bicarbonate. We also did a cross-sectional, or what you'd call on-the-spot questions, and found that for the most part, when you ask providers what medications they would use for hyperkalemic cardiac arrest, most of them would say calcium. Most of them would say sodium bicarbonate, albuterol, V6, and caexilates. But we found a lot of variations in the sequence in which they said they would administer it.
0: So what did you do in this study?
1: Well, with the study, our primary objective was to characterize the preferred choices, the preferred sequence, and a variability of preferences of therapeutic interventions for hyperkalemia during pediatric cardiac arrest by PEGEE fellows and attendants. We hypothesized that PQ attendants would be more likely than the PQ fellows to choose the therapeutic options recommended by the ACLS guidelines. We went ahead to design a cross-sectional survey in two parts. The first part was on participant demographics. And the second part started with an introductory clinical scenario of a child in cardiac arrest, Getting a blood transfusion was found to have VTAC. TAT labs showed that he had a potassium level of 8.3. The clinical scenarios was followed by a list of 38 medications mentioned at least once in the PALS guidelines. And these were also medications frequently found in code carts. Each participant was asked about their choice of medication, the route of administration of medication and sequence of administration of medication, and the strength of preference. So... They were asked if they would definitely use for hyperkalemic cardiac arrest, if they would maybe use for hyperkalemic cardiac arrest, and if they would only use when the hyperkalemia has been refractory to other treatments. The survey was designed in such a way that participants could indicate they would use a medication without specifying what order they would administer it. So, for instance, a participant could indicate that they would administer calcium without stating if they would administer calcium first, second, or third. The participant could also indicate that multiple medications would be administered at the same time, like indicating that calcium and albuterol would be the first medication they would administer. We try to limit the options in our survey to real-life options. As a result, medications that we felt would only have the IV option were given as just IV, like calcium gluconate had just IV option. Then medications like insulin, where you had multiple routes of administration like IV or subcute, we had those options on the survey. The survey was distributed to all the fellows and attendings at the annual PICU fellows bootcamp at CHOP for two consecutive years. And this bootcamp is usually attended by first-year Piki fellows from the northeast region. Every year we have approximately twenty five percent of the PQ fellows in the United States attending this simulation based multi institutional training. The survey was paper based and participation was voluntary. And we had a good response rate. We had about eighty nine percent responding with eighty four fellows and twenty four attendants. When did you do this survey? So we distributed the survey first in twenty eleven. And then we redistributed d- in 2012 to only people who did not complete the survey the previous year.
0: And were the attendings all from CHOP, or were from they from a variety of institutions?
1: Oh, they were from all the institutions. We had the fellows from.
0: So you had a good, reasonably broad cross section of the picky world.
1: Yes. Well, the <laughs> 25% from the Northeast region. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: So what did you find?
1: Well, we had some expected and some rather surprising findings. So for findings, we had like three broad categories. We had the choice of medication, we had the route of administration, and we had the sequence. For the choice, the most frequently chosen medications by our respondents were calcium salts, sodium bicarbonate, insulin, dextrose, albuterol, and glicics. Calcium salts were very popular, which reflects the general consensus in the literature on the use of calcium. Our results also reflect the controversy on the choice of calcium salt, with some picking calcium chloride and others picking calcium gluconate. We also had respondents that picked both calcium salts, and we had respondents who did not pick any calcium salt. That was surprising. Regarding the route of administration, we had participants that picked that they would use insulin only as IV bolus. We know that the onset of action for insulin is within 10 to 15 minutes when it's given as a bolus administration. But we also had participants that indicated that they would administer insulin only as a continuous infusion or subcutaneously. That was a bit surprising considering the fact that the case was hyperkalemic cardiac arrest. Uh-huh we had about 60% of respondents indicating that they would administer insulin only as continuous infusion and subcut, without giving the IV bolus at all during cardiac arrest. And then for the sequence of administration, most of our respondents indicated that the order of delivery of at least one medication without indicating, some of them didn't indicate the order of delivery of the other medications. Participants who only partially indicated the order of delivery were included in our analysis because we felt that we were going to get reasonable information from that. For instance, we had participants that would indicate that they would administer both insulin and albuterol and then go on to specify in what order they would administer albuterol without stating when they would administer the insulin. Among the respondents that specified the order of delivery for the calcium salts, Calcium was most frequently chosen as the first medication they would administer, and we had about 70% choosing one of both calcium salts as the first medication they would administer. About a third of our respondents chose a medication other than calcium as the first medication to be administered. Among those that chose sodium bicarbonate, it was frequently selected as the second medication. But we had a very relatively low consensus on sodium bicarbonate, which is not very surprising, considering all the controversy in the literature regarding the use of sodium bicarbonate in hyperkalemic cardiac arrest. And then, for insulin and dextrose, both were most frequently picked by respondents as the third medication they would administer. Only 15% of respondents indicated that they would administer calcium, sodium bicarbonate, insulin, and dextrose in the ACLS-recommended sequence. This was surprising considering the fact that majority of our respondents had received ACLS training. The PQ attendants were more likely than the fellows to indicate that they would administer the medications in the ACLS-recommended sequence. This confirmed our hypothesis. And when you look at everything in the context of the fact that we lack clear guidelines for the choice sequence and route of administration of medications, then the results are not very surprising.
0: When you had some of your surprising findings, for example, some of your respondents did not pick calcium as a therapeutic option at all, and some only would use insulin subcutaneously. Mm -hmm. Did you look at whether those were fellows or those were attendings?
1: So... We didn't we looked at we looked to see if there was any difference in the number of people that chose that let's say they would use they would not use calcium and we found that we had more fellows indicating that they wouldn't use calcium than the attendings.
0: But you had some attendings who would not yeah. use calcium? Yes, that, that's really surprising to me. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. So what are the implications of your study for our current clinical practice as well as for our educational programs?
1: The implications, I think, for clinical practice and educational programs are intertwined. The study highlights some of the difficulties faced in the management of life-threatening hyperkalemia. We have several decisions that currently need to be made real-time, like the choice of calcium salts to use. Will it be chloride or gluconate? This choice, we understand, is affected by institutional policies on administration of chloride, maybe. Do we allow chloride peripherally, or does it have to be central? We also have questions on the route of administration of insulin. Is it going to be IV? And even if you decide it's going to be IV, are you going to give it as an IV bolus or are you going to give it as a continuous infusion? The decision to administer insulin, alone, insulin with glucose, or just glucose, because we actually had respondents that said they would administer just glucose without insulin. And then the decision to give or not to give sodium bicarbonate. All these decisions potentially add to the cognitive load of the healthcare provider with a huge potential for breakdown in communication, in deterioration of leadership, and almost inevitably a deterioration in the quality of CPR. Then we have the PALS guidelines, which lack clear recommendations on the sequence. This plays into clinical practice, which ends up being very variable, not just due to the individual presentations of our patients, but also as a result of the lack of clear recommendations, with the chosen sequence dependent on the individual preferences of different providers. This, in turn, impacts what residents and fellows are taught.
0: What about the limitations of your study?
1: Well, the study was faced with several limitations. We had limitations peculiar to the study design, This was a survey study, and responses might not reflect real-life practices we also had incomplete responses which might induce a response bias associated with provided uncertainties in some questionnaire items. And then we distributed the, the, the survey to first-year PQ fellows, mostly at the bootcamp, camp, who had just finished their pediatric residency training about a month prior, making our results more representative of general pediatric residents at the end of their training than of PQ fellows. The survey also does not capture the response of other pediatric specialties, like the pediatric emergency medicine fellows and attendants, who also manage life-threatening hyperkalemia sometimes. Finally, the responses by the PQ providers in our study may have been affected by their local um, institutional policies and the availability of medications at their institution.
0: I think that likely is the case, particularly as you alluded to with regards to the use of calcium chloride versus calcium gluconate and perhaps other issues. So how do we address these concerns that you raised for standardization and, and education? Where do we go from here?
1: Oh The hyperkalemia bundle, (laughs) I understand that there are lots of controversies regarding bundles, but a bundle in this case would provide some cognitive unloading, which would be very useful, especially in situations where the resuscitation team is led by a novice leader. Think of a child in cardiac arrest with hyperkalemia as the identified cause. The leader orders the hyperkalemia bundle without having to ponder at length the various questions we raised earlier. We think this would lead to a shorter time from diagnosis to administration of medication and would reduce the stress and anxiety for providers. And we're currently designing the next phase of the study, which is a multi-center simulation study looking at the impact of a hyperkalemia bundle on the time to administration of medication, the quality of CPR, and the reported stress level on providers. We acknowledge that the bundle will not be appropriate for using every clinical scenario, but we believe that the bundle would pro- probably be very beneficial, more so to the novice provider like the residents and the fellows, who have less clinical acumen to fall back on than the attending.
0: The concept of uh, bundles, as you said, is certainly widely applicable in critical care, and this is kind of a novel kind of bundle. It seems to me that it would be helpful not only to residents and fellows who may be in the situation of leading a code when they're not that experienced. But it would also potentially be very helpful to the nursing staff to know what is what they are likely to be asked for next and what medications to draw up and have ready in what order. So it seems to me it might help the functioning of the team as well.
1: Yeah, that's the hope. Well, that's what we hope to find with the next well,
0: study. It well, it'll be very interesting to see what your your next step is. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make?
1: Well, hypokalemia is potentially life-threatening. It might not be the commonest cause of cardiac arrest, but it happens, and it is reversible. We would like to ensure that when providers are faced with this situation, nothing detracts from providing high-quality CPR. We believe that having clear recommendations on the PALS guidelines would be a step in the right direction.
0: Well, thank you very much, Nan. I appreciate your joining us today. Oh, thank you. We have been talking today with Dr. Chime about the article, A Survey Demonstrating Lack of Consensus on the Sequence of Medications for Treatment of Hyperkalemia Among Pediatric Critical Care Providers, published in the June 2015 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker.
2: Have you listened to SCCM Pod 231 on Family Presence, Evidence versus Emotion, or SCCM Pod 232 on Assessing Family Satisfaction? SCCM wants to know how these Project Dispatch sponsored podcasts changed or influenced your practice. To provide feedback, contact SCCM's Director of Quality, Lori Harmon, at L. Harmon at sccm.org. Or to learn more about SCCM's Project Dispatch, visit www.sccm.org projectdispatch Project Dispatch. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an Associate Editor for the Eye Critical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York. And is the director of the pediatric intensive care unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material, and all rights are reserved